0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, my name is Michael Johnston and I'm a a host on New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Today I have Dr. Allison Burgess, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at Trinity College. Today we're going to be talking about her recently published book titled Diagnosing Desire, Biopolitics, and Femininity into the 21st Century. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Spurgess.
2: Thanks for having me, Michael. Good to be here.
1: And uh, so to start off with, what inspired you to conduct this research and to uh, develop this, this book?
2: Um, well, so it, it really started for me um, in about 2009, um, and I was a grad student um, in New York City and um, I was, you know, I was studying gender and sexuality and embodiment, um, you know, in a kind of a medical sociology track in my graduate program. And around this time, I noticed that there were a lot of articles coming out. Um, I mean, the two kind of really big ones were kind of bookended the year 2009. So one at the beginning of that year, one at the end, um, both written by Daniel Bergner, Um, a journalist who had written um, before about about desire and sexuality. Um, But these particular articles were entitled, um, What Do Women Want? was the first one. Um, And then the second one was called Women Who Want to Want. Um, And it was in these pieces that I noticed the way that what I come to call the the new science of female sexuality um, was being framed. And I started to notice um, that kind of at the tail end of the first decade of, you know, the 21st century, the early aughts into the, you know, the, you know 2009, almost 2010, um, that there was this, this kind of really renewed focus on women and women's sexuality and women's desire as particularly being, being different from men's. You know, and and it was, but I thought, what, what, what I think what was really, what really caught my attention, what I thought was most interesting, was that it was framed um, under kind of under the sign of feminism. Like it was absolutely considered to be feminist. It was um, understood to be kind of pro-woman. Um, and, uh, you know, it seemed like the researchers, for instance, that Daniel Bergner interviews in these two pieces really had... You know, very good intentions. They were, you know, they identified as feminists. They were, um, you know, they were young, and they were they. They seemed really invested, you know, in um, in helping women who struggled with um with se- <laughs> sexual issues. But the issue that that I noticed was that um, even as they were clearly seeking to help women, um, the, the the primary issue in these two pieces was this idea that women have you know, have low desire. Women have different desire systems. They experience desire differently from men. Um, And so what caught my attention is that even though there was this kind of like feminist intention, there was still this kind of intense focus on the idea that men's and women's sexuality was really different. And this caught my attention because, you know, I was studying uh, queer theory, post-structuralism, you know, kind of psychoanalysis, you know, all from a sociological perspective. And I, so, I, I mean, I, I was used to thinking in terms of how, um, and I still am used to this, and thinking of, about how science and medicine, um, including psychi- psychiatry and psychology, um, produce categories. You know, they have a long history of producing categories of study. Right. And so we have this history of, um, the ways that, you know, from psychoanalysis on, you know, beginning with, you know, before Freud, you know, with like kind of the earliest, um, even sexologists and then definitely the psychoanalysts were thinking about, for instance, like the homosexual, you know, as this kind of like deviant other. Um, and a lot of these people were also invested in, in women's sexuality, you know, including Freud himself, like female sexuality. And, so I just think we have this, you know, we have this very long history um, in sexology and then in psychology and psychiatry, you know, in, initially in this kind of psychoanalytic space of thinking about women as these kinds of like very different creatures. Um, and, you know, this starts to, sh- I'm doing a bit of a history here, but, you know, this this starts to shift in the mid 20th century, I think, with the um, the shift toward behaviorism. Um, and so the work of people like Masters and Johnson who wanted to study sex in a much more explicitly, um, what they understood to be a scientific objective kind of way. Um, but they still studied, you know, men and women and they still kind of studied them very like separately. And, and even though they gave equal attention to men and women and they actually did much to kind of improve the position of, (laughs) of attention to women's sexuality, I think in sexology, they still rehearsed certain I- ideas about kind of the naturalness of heteronormativity, um, you know, and I think that that really their work uh, ends up leading into the work of today that, you know, kind of still, still reifies these gender differences. So, I, so what I noticed was that in these, in, you know, in the very beginning of the 21st century, there had been this, transition, you know, through these different modes of psychology and sexology, you know, beginning in the very beginning of the, um, you know, the, the late 19th century into the 20th century with Freud and psychoanalysis, you know, then behaviorism, we have kind of this moment of more a focus on the similarity of the sexes. Um, but then kind of emerging from behaviorism and Masters and Johnson, um, there is this shift in the later half of the 20th century um, to specifically think about the sexual problems of women and to really kind of narrow in on, on what the differences for women are. Um, and I think a lot of that research is really, is really important and powerful, right? So we have like the, the height report. Um, we have a lot of um, feminist uh you know, like enhancement, like women, you know, sexual enhancement workshops, you know, being done, for instance, in like the 60s and 70s. And a lot of this is really good. But what it ends up leading to is the idea that some of the more gender neutral things that Masters and Johnson were were doing, um, like their focus on the human sexual response cycle, which is the idea that we have we start with um, excitement, we move to plateau, we have um, resolution. Uh, there, there starts to be a kind of critique of this. And so to get back to the Bergner articles the Bergner articles, I think that what I noticed was that some of those some of the critiques of the human sexual response cycle of Masters and Johnson were making this kind of reappearance and they were being, solidified in the sexual science of today, the very beginning of the 21st century. Um, and, and so we see these, these sexual, um, these scientists, you know, scientists, therapists, researchers who are really interested in, in specifically focusing on women, um, but who are, who are starting to take issue with that kind of linearity of the sexual response cycle. And they are arguing that women women are different. Um, and what they ultimately argue in those pieces, and particularly at least how Bergner um, kind of describes them, is that women are more receptive and responsive. Um, and that's really, that's what struck me. And that's what continues to strike me about, you know, what was the beginning of this. Really, it was supposed to be this, like, kind of whole new venture in 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 sexual science and sexual research, um, but somehow we still see the words, you know, receptivity and responsiveness being used by the most contemporary cutting-edge scientists and specifically for women. So I thought that even though it was great (laughs) that women's problems were being taken seriously, I was really intrigued in how these scientists got to the place where receptivity and responsiveness were kind of the dominant framings here for women.
1: And one of the things that really stood out to me in your, uh, in your writing is how well you were able to uh, bring out the triad of biology, psychology, and sociology, and how they interact with one another, and how often uh, much of the earlier research focused either on the, on the psychology alone or the biology alone responsiveness right and reaction being biological um, and then psychological with uh, um, with Freud particularly and, and separating the two when in an everyday experience the three cannot be separated into their own um, separate categories.
2: Yeah absolutely and I think that you know at this time even though there was a lot of attention you know even in that first, that first decade of the 21st century to the what you know, what's become called the biopsychosocial model. Um, a lot of, se- of sexologists and, psych- and kind of psychosexual therapists have argued that really the biological still kind of reigns. Um, so, for instance, you know Peggy Kleinplatz, who I cite a lot in my book, um, has made that argument that really ultimately we see the biological still kind of being the main focus. Um, Even if there is purportedly attention to these more social kind of environmental dimensions, it's really about biology.
1: Um, As you were talking about in the 1960s and 1970s and contraceptives and uh, uh, other feminine sexual tools being invented and distributed widely, that's that's where the social comes into play, or at least part of where social comes into play and, and how women are perceived in everyday interaction.
2: Yeah, and, well, and so that's actually a really interesting um, piece of this, is that I think that what, it, that what I also started to notice, um, and other, other sexual researchers have also noticed this too, is that women are perceived as being kind of uniquely social when it comes to sex. Um, women, and I think that's actually kind of part of the responsiveness criteria, which is so interesting because even though we often do see that rooted in biology, like, so, so women are different kind of like biologically, the idea is that women are biologically oriented to the social, like that women are more, that, that women's sexuality is more influenced by the social, um, and so, for instance, in the, in the work right at the turn of the 21st century of someone like Roy Baumeister, who is not officially an evolutionary psychologist, but who certainly makes claims at that time that kind of resonate with evolutionary psychology, these kind of like hardwired gender differences, you know, that are purportedly due to adaptations um, from, you know, things starting with our, with our you know, prehistoric ancestors, Um, he argues, you know, that, that, that women are more nurture and men are more nature, but he kind of does it in biological terms, if that makes sense. So it's a really kind of, it's a weird thing where we see, and I think that that really actually extends into a lot of the work that I end up critiquing in my book is that we have this idea that in biological terms that men are more, are more kind of like just streamlined Their sexuality is like, uh, you know, in all the tropes, right. Goal goal oriented, um, you know, just kind of easy to understand and that women are more complex and it's because women are more kind of just affected by the environment, by their relationships, intimate, emotional, you know, kind of all these things.
1: And this is sort of a bridge into those misconceptions, right? And how, how these misconceptions and how men are framed and women are framed lead to negative consequences both for, for men's sexuality and for women's sexuality. So maybe this could be a, a time that we talk about the misconceptions about uh, uh, the view that arousal, erection, and ejaculation are equivalent and are, they, are in the ideal form and the misconceptions that female desire and arousal are, are co-occurring.
2: Yeah, so 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 other sexuality researchers um in the more sociological, medical sociology, kind of science-technology studies tradition, um, for instance, like um Stephen Epstein and Tom White have written about the the plethysmograph. So this this instrument that I also talk about that's used to study the um, the connection or disparity what's also called the um, the concordance or discordance between subjective and objective arousal and so here objective arousal is is um, measured as physical arousal like that's the there's a device that's either attached to the penis or inserted into the vagina or sometimes um, clipped to the labia or the clitoris um, but especially at this time you know in the early 21st century it's You know the the female version is is almost always inserted into the vagina, um, and and so like the the measurement that's that is produced from that is measured against the subjective um, experience. So basically, in a laboratory, someone would be hooked up to this device. You know, have their genitals hooked up to a device. um, Be shown different kinds of porn. You know, uh, for instance, it's, it's often there's often, you know, gender differences. So it's like, it's it's meant to, to suggest um, your your gender orientation. You know, are you turned on by men or women? Does that indicate that you are, you know, heterosexual or homosexual? Um, nowadays, we often hear, hear terms like androphilic and gynophilic um, meant to kind of push away from sexual orientation, the restrictions of that, um, or in terms of identity. But but anyway, but so, but the, the beginning in the 70s, you know, we, or even before that, we start to see it was really the 50s actually, um, with the, uh, the Czech um, sexologist Kurt Freund. Um, we, we see these devices used, and what, what ends up being consistently shown in the decades from the 50s on is that men are purported to be physically aroused by what they say they are aroused by. And women are are less likely to have that. So men are more concordant and and women are said to be more discordant. Um, and initially, this this research, particularly for men, is used, um, I mean, for instance, even to, you know, to say, are they really, are they really gay? <laughs> you know, it's, it's basically used as a lie detector test. And so going back to the sexology or the, um, sorry, the sociologists of sex, of, of sexuality, like Waidunas and Epstein, they write about this plethysmograph, and particularly the, pen- the penile plethysmograph, um, used as a lie detector test or what they call a, te- a technosexual script. Um, a kind of truthing technology. And you know, to this day, that's still the case with with the device for men. like it's it's said to be it's it kind of tells the truth. It's you know, even though it's it's been disputed in in different kind of court cases. the idea is that it can be used forensically or clinically to determine, for instance, if if a man is actually a pedophile because the idea is that what he, what he is turned on by, you know, objectively, what his penis becomes engorged by is the truth. From the idea, you know, in the words of, for instance, J. Michael Bailey in an article in, you know, that gets a lot of prominence in the New York Times in 2005, you know, he says, for men, um, arousal is orientation. Okay. And so this is actually used to suggest that men um, are not bisexual, <laughs> that men are either gay or straight. For women, the story is always the, is kind of the opposite. <laughs> like, it's the idea is always beginning in the research in in the sixties and seventies and onward is that women are more are more likely to have this discordance. Um, but this is this is really weird because then also, as I point out in the book, interest and arousal are brought together in this new diagnosis that I look at in the DSM. So you know, in the DSM five. There's a shift from having, for instance, female sexual arousal disorder as one thing, you know, being supposedly just about the body and its ability to be aroused, and the um, and desire, you know, H- HSDD, hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So for women only in the DSM-5, those two are brought together and they become female sexual interest slash arousal disorder. And the idea behind that, that shift is, is the idea that women... Um, can often not distinguish between their own um, subjective desire and their, I I mean, what's really called their subjective arousal. But it's very confusing, right? Because it seems to contradict this idea that there's this whole other realm of experience that is the objective vaginal or clitoral even arousal that you know, kind of is the truth of the bodily experience. Um, So at the same time that those two things, interest and arousal, are brought together, and again, they they kind of specify in the DSM it's subjective interest or interest and subjective arousal. um, Objective arousal and interest are held apart. Um, And so it's a a strange contradiction. And I I, I mean, I, I go through this in the book and kind of point out how there's just all these different terms that are being kind of thrown around. You know, there's the term interest and objective arousal and subjective arousal. And so, you know, we're, we're getting. Or here.
1: Yeah. Or going back to clitoral arousal and the vaginal arousal from, from early Freud, right. It doesn't seem like it's that far removed.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, well, I, I, I mean, I think that that in many ways um, the researchers and the people that I'm, you know, kind of examining um, this whole line of research that I'm examining that focuses on the concordance and the discordance, um, you know, the, the the different forms of receptivity, you know, this kind of like the circular sexual response cycle is another thing I address. Um, I think that these researchers like are in, in many ways moving away from kind of like more vulgar Freudian explanations. But what I argue in the book is that as much as as kind of contemporary psychology and sexology take issue takes issue with Freud and wants to distance itself from what it's what it sees as this kind of reductive um, inherent drive model and also these these kind of vulgar differences in male and female sexuality, what I argue is that they kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater in that they, They actually end up throwing out kind of the good parts of what I think are the psychoanalytic and psychodynamic models that focus on trauma and the environment and how early family experiences or all these things really do impact our our sexuality and desire. They throw all that out, you know, kind of in the name of, of behaviorism. But then they hold on to, I think, in many ways, certain kinds of antiquated ideas Um, at least in this first decade of the 21st century. And I I do think that things are starting to change now. But as I point out in the book, basically from Masters and Johnson on, we start to have this shift toward behaviorism. um, And there's this whole kind of convoluted way that both women are, you know, are seen as these, are are still seen as these kind of uniquely sexual creatures or these unique sexual creatures. And then... Um, but particularly constrained by their own responsiveness and receptivity.
1: Yeah, and I think that uh, some of the consequences that come to mind, even with that whole lie detector, these um, tests as, as lie detector tests, is it, it sort of advances the, the rape myth that exists for men, that, well, if men are attracted to and they, their arousal responds to it, then that must make them homosexual or, or heterosexual. A man can't lie when, he, when he's aroused that's, uh, that's damaging.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I think it's really damaging. And I think that like in this, in this whole shift, um, men have really gotten less attention, you know, or just I mean, even to move away from category, the categories of men and women, people with penises, you know, have gotten less attention as being, you know, or, you know, there is a there's a way that like, that people with certain body parts are assumed to, you know, to be cisgender, you know, to have that match their um, experience in the world. Um, and I think it's very reductive. I think it's, you know, it it, it definitely perpetuates these ideas um, that I think some contemporary researchers are trying to push back against. Um, but one thing that I, I also talk about in the book that I found troubling is I, I think that there was kind of a slippage between what I was reading and hearing from some of some of the contemporary researchers of female sexuality, you know, on the one hand would say, well, you know, well, women are kind of uniquely responsive. Like women are, women are uniquely receptive and responsive. And it's, you know, I think it, again, it kind of goes back to some ideas from evolutionary psychology. It goes back to the, those ideas like from someone like Roy Baumeister, you know, who thinks that women are more nurture and men are more nature. Um, so on the one hand, some some researchers some researchers would say, um, no, you know, women are more receptive and responsive, and and you know, they were less concerned with kind of unpacking why that is. They were less concerned with saying, well, are is it social reasons? You know, like what are the diff- what are the actual you know things that are at play here? Um, but then sometimes I would also hear, well, you know, men are too, but we just haven't studied them as much. You know, so maybe men are responsive and receptive too, but we we just, we aren't studying them. And I became so interested in that. You know, why is it the case that men are not being studied in this way? And I think there are some, uh, there are some places where we do, we see more gender neutrality. So in the book, for, int- for instance, I talk about the incentive motivation model. Um, you know, this is this Dutch model that becomes um it it really becomes kind of the new way of thinking about desire in the 90s i think is really when it starts to really kind of take shape and take root um and it's the idea that you know we we react to things are in our in our environment and we can think about desire um and again the word desire is never used but we can think about interest for inter- if for instance like your interest in any kind of sexual experience um, in terms of things like rewards rewards and incentive and motivation? You know, are you motivated to engage in sex? Um, but what I was really struck by is that at least in the North American context, that was used, that whole framework was just, seemed to be applied more often to women, you know? So where in some cases we would see researchers in the Netherlands and in Europe using the incentive motivation model to also study men and to say, well, what, what stimuli you know, uh, motivate men, <laughs> you know, we more often saw that for, for women. And I think that like the fact that these articles by Daniel Bergner are written and focus on women, you know, in 2009, 10, you know, right at the kind of the entrance into the 2010s and teens, um, you know, it's all about women. It's all about women being kind of, are women motivated? Are, do, are, do women seek rewards sexually? Um, and men are still kind of left with that more reductive model of, well, you know, of course men's desire is intact, you know, and of course men have desire and, you know, their problems are just physical. Um, and again, I, you know, I've heard different things from different researchers that I've talked to. Some will say, well, men, you know, just were kind of left in the dust. They weren't studied enough and they should have been studied more. Um, and some would say, well, women are different, you know, women. And, and, but again, I don't think that was ever unpacked enough. Well, why, if women are different and, and in my book, I, you know, I basically say, I agree with these people that, that for many, for many women, there's like a kind of like feminine experience of sex. Um, that is, that is specific. You know, it's a very specific experience, but my argument is that that is not, that is not due to any kind of like biological difference, you know, and, and that too often, especially in the early 21st century, evolutionary psychology was used as the fallback. Well, it was, well, women are, you know, women are, are gatherers and men are hunters. Women um, are more maternal and had to take care of children. Um, women are, you know, women are, are, that's why women are, are better multitaskers. You know, and then that all ends up feeding into this idea that also women just aren't sexual like men are. Um, And I think it does a disservice to men and women. I think it does a disservice to everyone because it doesn't, you know, we don't get to hear, (laughs) we don't get to hear the stories of men, you know, who don't feel spontaneously sexual. We don't hear the stories enough of women who do feel spontaneously sexual Um, We're almost always focusing too much on cis people. You know, we very rarely are hearing the stories of trans people or non-binary folks or agender folks in these areas. Um, And then so these antiquated kind of like cis-normative, heteronormative ideas are just rehearsed. Um, And another thing I I would add really quickly is that um, I also think that a lot of these ideas about men's and women's sexuality and the differences therein Traffic in a certain whiteness, uh, a kind of racial insensitivity. I think there's a way that evolutionary psychology is, um, is very whitewashed. You know, it's a white, it is white, and it's and it's not like the cave people ancestors that are being imagined are <laughs> like, the, you know, there's they're trafficking in in a in a in a very not culturally diverse kind of sexuality, you know, at all. Um, and I think that's a problem too. And so, so one thing I, I also mentioned in the beginning of my book um, is that these ideas about feminine receptivity that have been maintained um, are not racially sensitive and they're not actually um, attending to the diversity of sexual experiences across cultures and um, you know, just experiences of different types of folks. And they're also not... They don't. They don't acknowledge the ways that um, our discourses of sexual difference are very much bound up with white supremacy. Um, and I, you know, I so I do talk about that, that in the introduction. I won't go into all the details of that here, but I think that we can look to the recent work of people like Kyla Schuller, um, C. Riley Snorton, and then of course the work of of people like Hortense Spillers, Sadia Hartman. Um, to think about the ways that black women have never been framed as receptive and responsive. You know, that's something that's reserved for white women. Um, so that's a kind of unacknowledged piece of this. And I think that that's that's my concern, right? is why is why is this um, why are these ideas about masculine and feminine sexuality, you know, still happening in the twenty first century? you know, and why are they not being interrogated more historically and more structurally?
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, To take your retail business to the next level today—that's Shopify.com/slash-system.
1: And why do we continue to use a single script when we know that there are multiple characters in this in this production?
2: Yeah, I think it's one way to put it. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly,
2: (laughs) exactly, yeah, yeah. So there's just there's a ton of, um, and again, you know, I, I focus primarily on that first like kind of what leads us into the first decade um, of the 21st century. And I do things, I think that things are starting to shift now. Absolutely. Including some of the people, the characters in my own story that I critique and that I, you know, question their, their research and kind of the ways that they feed into evolutionary psychology tropes or they support those ideas. I think that they are starting to kind of rebrand themselves, change their tune go down different kinds of research roads. And I think that's amazing. Um, so for instance, I've been very excited about the more recent work of Meredith Chivers. I think that um, she's pursuing some really different kinds of ways of thinking about women's sexual pleasure. Um, I think that the work of, of someone like, sorry, Van Anders is really, really intriguing. Um, you know, pushing back on some of these ideas. Um, you know, I think that I've, I've seen Lori Brado, um, who I talk more about re- in regards to mindfulness and the FSI diagnosis, um, you know, doing more work on, for instance, like BDSM and the kind of mindfulness aspects of that, I think that's really interesting, and I hope that I'll see you know that' we'll see, that we'll see more of that. But my concern um, in the beginning of the twenty first century, and particularly when I read these articles by Daniel Bergner, and I saw that I like I, I really felt like they were just kind of representing a broader cultural idea about men and women. Um, that was just really being rehearsed and I think is still rehearsed. Um, I think that these researchers in that first decade of the 21st century, kind of like, you know, not in any kind of intentional necessarily way really did feed into this, what I end up calling the feminized responsive desire framework.
1: Yes. And Chivers brings out a, um, has developed a 10 hypotheses model and, and really has given credit to, um, Women's sexual preferences that do not align with what or who may physically arouse them, uh, and that might take us to our second part of uh, pathologizing uh, sexual, uh, what what is perceived as dysfunctions. But lack of arousal. Uh, how does this How does this new model that she has developed help understand what is really going on when desire and arousal do not align?
2: Well, she hasn't really come up with a model. Um, I mean, I think there there are different models for responsive um, desire and arousal that have come out more recently. Um, I think in the piece that you're referencing that I talk about in chapter two of my book, um, I mean, so a bit about Chivers and her work and and her kind of research team. I mean, in, in the early 21st century, you know, the first, like, you know, 2000, I think it was four um, it, it's it's her team that really puts forward this idea about women's discordance, um, meaning the discordance between objective um, objective arousal and so called subjective desire and subjective arousal. Um, and so that that research is is the you know that's kind of the first place I believe it's Meredith Trivers and J. Michael Bailey who is also responsible for this idea that becomes popularized in 2005, um, about, uh, men, (laughs) men, men, you know, being unable to be bisexual, that men are only either gay or straight and that their penises kind of tell the truth of that. Um, you know, they also, they start doing this research on, on female discordance. And so (laughs) it's really, it's in that body of work that we start to see this idea that, um, that women and, you know, and then eventually, particularly heterosexual women or, which she calls androphilic women later, um, that they just they don't, that their objective arousal and their um, subjective desire often do not align. <clears throat> and then, so also in that research is where we start to see this um, what is called the preparation hypothesis. The idea that part of that is based in, or that one explanation for that is um, is based in evolutionary psychology, and it's the idea that. Women are, are at least physiologically aroused by everything because, because it's, a, it's an adaptive mechanism. It protects their bodies from rape, basically from, from rape in, in kind of like prehistoric cave people environments, <laughs> um, you know, and this is obviously a pretty grim kind of way of conceptualizing this purportedly female specific adaptation. Um, you know, so we we first see that kind of in some of that early research. It gets taken up later by researchers like Sashinsky and Le Lumiere, who actually very recently came out with an article kind of walking through um, whether or not this hypothesis is still empirically supported. Um, you know, and they find conflicting evidence, but ultimately say, you know there's still a place for this kind of in our contemporary sexological research. Um, recently, Shivers has actually said that she's kind of complicated that narrative a little bit and and opened it, open it up to the possibility that, that women kind of get turned on by everything as a way to prepare themselves for pleasure, um, kind of shifting the frame to a more sex-positive view, which I think is very interesting. Um, but I still, I guess my concern is I just, I don't know why, I don't know why we have to study this this discordance, ad nauseum. I, I don't know why the plethysmograph is still being used the way that it's used. I, I, I still think it's used as a kind of lie detector test. I think that as much as, or at least that's the way that it's interpreted publicly, right? Even if, Even if that's not the intention of these research teams, you know, to say, this is a lie detector test, you know, don't believe women when they say they're not turned on, they really are. I, of course, these people are not saying that, but that is how it's interpreted by too many people. And if, I mean, it, just read the comments, <laughs> like read the comments to these Bergner articles and even to more recent pieces, like you will see, and I document this in my book, the way that this in, is interpreted is is in keeping with the idea that that it's a lie detector test, that basically the polygraph kind of keeps tabs on like what's really happening or like the other side of the story. Um, and I think it's really unsurprising that that's the case, given its history. If we think about the fact that it was initially used in the 1950s, you know, by these, these these Czech sexologists to, you know, to determine whether or not men were actually gay, and thus whether whether or not they they should be able to be in the military or not, which is literally how it was initially used. That it's unsurprising that it's still being thought of as a, as a type of lie detector test. Um, but what I think that is, is, is even more kind of provocative though, is that it's, it's also used to continue this idea that women are confused, that women are complex, that women uniquely have this kind of really weird thing going on that ri- that women are uniquely just like kind of mu- have this mind body split um and i do think that this has like kind of weird unfortunate resonances with ideas about hysteria you know i think that there's like a lot here um, that i i i just I, I like this idea that women are complex is such an old idea you know, and I just think that this this type of technology is still being used to tell that story. When the truth is that everyone's sexuality is complex or not. Like, it's just why you know why is that still this kind of go to like to kind of continue to like to put the spotlight on women's complexity. Um, and again, I, I you know in my book, I interview I interview women about their about their own experiences with desire and particularly low desire, and. You know, a lot of them do kind of tell stories of complexity. So, I mean, there is that. But what I try to expose is that they have, they have these like deep, long histories of often sexual trauma, of, you know, all kinds of social and environmental factors that have impacted their experiences that do make their experiences of sex um, more difficult or complex but that it's not anything that's inherent to them. That it's not anything that's inherent to like the female condition or to femininity. And so my argument is that this type of technology and using it to do what I call measure the gap. I call it the work of the gap is just, it just perpetuates. It's a technology of gender. It's um. it's what why why Zunis and Epstein would call a truthing technology. It's a, it's it, it continues to perpetuate these, these techno sexual scripts, um, where women continue to kind of experience themselves this way. And then, you know, it, it, it's just, a, it's a self perpetuating cycle. That's ultimately what I'm, what I argue.
1: Yes. And the traumas that uh, you made mention to, uh, of many of the participants range from things like, uh, um, physical trauma to, to emotional trauma and, and, and how that influences their response to, um, to the desire for their their spouses or partners to want to have sexual relations, and uh, uh, and then how they deal with it. I, and it's interesting to see that uh, it's, it goes much further than this reception response dichotomy.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I, I think in, in general, I would say I think that um, that the effects of trauma on on desire. It, in today's kind of more behaviorist parlance is, are understudied, you know, I think that, and, and again, I think we're starting to see more of that research. Um, I know that I think there was a study that came out recently by O'Loughlin. There's definitely some, some more psycho, psychological research that's being cut, that's being devoted to this now. But again, this is kind of another, another thing that I think is an example of the baby being thrown out with the bathwater regarding Freud and psychoanalysis, Um, You know, psychoanalytic explanations have been, you know, for all of the other problems that we can attribute, you know, to them to like, they also have been good at analyzing the relationship between trauma and desire, the relationships between the, the idea that that desire is not, it's not just a response to one's environment, right? It's a very, it is a complex thing for everyone. Um, that it's deeply related to our social environments, to how we're socialized. It's also, um, it's related to power, you know. It's, it, and I and I think that. And so my my concern with today's discourse around desire, with this within this incentive motivation um, kind of framing, or um, information processing model, or kind of all the different ways that that this is being parsed, is that there's just not an attention to power. Like, there, there's a, it seems like there's an attempt to kind of evacuate power. And so, um, by nature, these psychological studies are just, are, are kind of anti structural. They're not, they're not really focusing on um, the way that the ways that people are disempowered and that that can, that can impact their desire in all kinds of ways. And that's, <laughs> you know? the,
1: and that's the biopolitical that you bring into your book with uh, Foucault in 1978 and his nexus between the private and the public, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, so well, I, I think that my my emphasis on on trauma and psychoanalysis it kind of set, uh, sits somewhat uneasily next to the Foucauldian analysis that I have of bio of biopolitics. Um, but I think that it's possible, you know. I obviously think it's possible to bring them together. Um, I mean, I talk a lot about about power in the book. I talk about um, how it's how there isn't a kind of an attempt to evacuate it, but how desire itself is kind of constituted within nexies of power. Um, And that's kind of that more trauma focused, like desire, you know, psycho, more psychoanalytic kind of focus. But then the biopolitics actually, I think comes in more. When we think about how beginning with, with these articles, I mean, at least for me and my own story, beginning with these articles that I read by Daniel Bergner where I also learned, you know, I, not only do I learn about this potential shift toward um, what would eventually become the female sexual interest slash arousal disorder diagnosis in the DSM, yeah, the DSM,
1: yeah,
2: yeah, and the DSM five. Um, you know, I also learn about discordance and concordance and the way that discordance is framed specifically as a kind of like feminine phenomenon um, in his first article. But then I also read in the second article about um, the entire kind of body of research coming out of Vancouver um, really attributed to Lori Brado, but, you know, also very much, I think, related to the work of Rosemary Bassan and now it's become a huge industry of research kind of, uh, you know, everywhere is around mindfulness and applying mindfulness to sex. Um, and so uh, what the other piece of the puzzle here, and so thank you for asking me about the biopolitics yeah. is, um, is, Alongside, you know, this kind of evolutionary stuff and the discordance and the new um, diagnosis, there's also simultaneously a way, and again, this is kind of where I see this, the incentive motivation kind of model being specifically applied to women. Um, really, it's, it's also kind of under the guise of, of what Bassan calls in 2000, the circular sexual response cycle and so in the year 2000 um and this is kind of very much in dialogue with but also a little bit separate from the incentive motivation model rosemary basson in vancouver comes up with this model based on her empirical research so she you knows she's doing this research with women and they're saying basically they're saying um I, you know i'm not i'm not turned on you know regularly at the beginning of a sexual encounter But, you know, sometimes I need to like get worked up, you know, and then once that happens, it can be okay. So the idea with um, that she, you know, she coins this circular sexual response cycle. um, Her 2000 article, her her article in the year 2000, I believe is, is called, um, you know, women's sexuality, I forget the exact title, but it's like, you know, a different model. And it's, it's really meant to be applied specifically to women. Like the idea is that this is That, um, that women might start an encounter sexually neutral, that they, um, yeah, that they just don't have spontaneous desire the way that men do. You know, this is considered to be partially a lack of, you know, like lower testosterone. Um, it's not really theorized. You know, there is some mention, I think, in that initial paper about the possible, the possible roles of stress. I don't believe trauma is really mentioned. Um, but I would have to go back and look to be sure, but, um, you know, and she, you know, she doesn't say this is, this is like an evolutionary adaptation. Um, but she does say, you know, women experience this kind of circular sexual response cycle uniquely. And, you know, at the same time, she's working with Dr. Brado and, um, you know, and, and Brado, by the way, does, uh, you know, amazing research on a variety of things. She also um, did some really important work on asexuality. She's doing really great work under COVID. but um and gender experiences under covid but um but in the early 2000s there is this this kind of shift that i think is is not just is not just in the realm of the mindfulness um applied to sex but just mindfulness generally where everything kind of becomes about mindfulness right it becomes this kind of like it's the third wave of cognitive behavioral therapy the idea being you know the first wave of behavioral therapy is just change change the behavior you know, I, I, you mentioned desensitization, I think, in one of your, <laughs> one of your questions to me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so it's kind of all just this very cognitive, like, classical conditioning model in psychology. Um, but later, you know, into the 21st century, it's, you know, it's all about cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's the mode that we are in, I think, now as we've moved so far away from psychoanalytic and psychodynamic explanations. Um, so we have behavioristic models and we have cognitive behavioral therapeutic treatments. And then mindfulness becomes kind of the third wave of that for all kinds of phenomena, right? There's like mindful parenting, there's mindful eating and dieting, but there's also mindful sex. And so in the, in the Bergner articles in 2009, there is much discussion in particularly the second article about how great mindfulness is for women with low desire, and so this initial research trajectory um, is is actually meant to be applied to to women who have just uh, undergone, for, for instance, pelvic surgeries because of gynecological cancers. So it's the idea you can use mindfulness to kind of restimulate restimulate your body, you know, like kind of like get your body back into shape to potentially have sex. Um, I think that that, you know, kind of makes sense to some degree for some of that. Like I'm, you know, I I can see the place in mindfulness for, for instance, like in terms of managing chronic pain, things like that. But then it starts to move into, you can use mindfulness just, you know, specifically if you have low desire or just if you want to improve your sex life, like any, any kind of problem sexually, you need to use mindfulness. But again, up until very recently, this is almost exclusively applied to women. The idea is that women should use mindfulness to enhance their own desire. And so I I think that, you know, what I try to point out in the book is that, again, not, you know, not like intentionally on anyone's part, but like with these different strands, with the discordance research, with the shift to behaviorism and incentive, the incentive motivation model, with the kind of concomitant circular sexual response Michael or model model. Um, and then, uh, with mindfulness, we see kind of all of these strands come together, and for me, they culminate in the 2013 edition of the DSM, the DSM-5, in this female sexual interest slash arousal disorder diagnosis, the FSA diagnosis. And so, in this diagnosis, <laughs> this is kind of like the crux of my book. I'm just, I know, I'm just now getting to this after 45 minutes. <laughs> it's that. There's this new diagnosis. It's going to be specifically for women. It's specifically for women with low desire, except the term desire is never used. Only the terms interest and arousal are used, which again are said to be kind of brought together, which is totally paradoxical given the fact that they're also said to not be the same thing in this other line of research. Um, But then also really importantly is that the, the criteria for the diagnosis become polythetic, so there are multiple different criteria. There's, I believe, there's six different criteria that, like, a clinician could choose from um, to diagnose a woman with with, with having this FSIAD disorder. And there, are, so so three out of six criteria are, are required, and one of those criteria, for the first time in the DSM, is about receptivity. And so the third criteria is you shouldn't be diagnosed with this disorder just because you don't have spontaneous desire, but also if you're not receptive to your partner's advances. And it literally says that in the DSM-5. In zoo. The third criteria is, is doesn't spontaneously desire or have desire and also and or also is not receptive to a partner's advances. And this is only for women. You know, you can literally only be diagnosed with this um, if you are a female. And I think that, I mean, (laughs) I think that my concerns about this are probably obvious at this point. I think that the way that this just sounds, you know, incredibly kind of coercive, you know, one may even use the term rapey. Um, I think that, you know, it just, it's kind of... But I think that what's really interesting and noticeable, and what also comes through in these Bergner articles and then in later research, is that this is all meant to depathologize women. The idea that's being put forward in this diagnosis is you should not be pathologized for not being, um, for not having spontaneous desire, for not being like a man. The idea that's put forward is you're a woman, you're more likely to be receptive and responsive. So you should only get this diagnosis, you know, or at least for some population of people, you know, who would be diagnosed if you are also not receptive. So the, do you see what I'm saying? So the idea here is that there's this gender or there's, there's, this, there's this neutrality that's like the idea is that women are just not as sexual as men yeah. and that therefore their desire is different they um, are more likely to be receptive and responsive, and so therefore they're only pathological if they are also not receptive and responsive. So it's actually meant to kind of – <laughs> I mean, it's really a way to kind of like institute complexity, I think, in the DSM for women. It's a way to say, well, women are more complex. Look, they have all these different criteria. They have all these different things going on. You know, they might just not, you know, they're, they're more receptive. They're more responsive. They're not as linear as men. They're not as spontaneous as men. And that's okay. But again, my concern is the ways that this does not just objectively describe women's experience, but actually institutes This, it it becomes, the diagnosis itself becomes a truthing technology, again, in the words of Weizunas and Epstein. It becomes a way of saying, this is what women are like. And so in my book, in my my third chapter, that's why I start to use the term um, women with low desire as a population. There's this kind of category that's produced via all these different strands, via the discordance research via the incentive motivation and the circular sexual response cycle model um, via the diagnosis, and then also via the mindfulness that says, you're a woman, you are more likely to have this gap between your objective and subjective experience. You are more likely to be complex and confused. You are more likely to be receptive and responsive. And that's okay. You're a woman. You're supposed to be like that. And I find that to be very very worrisome about the especially given the power that this discourse has and the way that it becomes disseminated you know through for instance these articles by bergner and many articles since then and then the ways that this all gets interpreted by the general public you know, so they, even, yeah. even though, you know, maybe these researchers did not mean for any of this to be the case and they meant to actually be depathologizing women, my argument is they actually produce a population, and this is the biopolitical argument with Foucault, to be worked upon, you know, to be worked upon um, through, for instance, mindfulness. You know, because mindfulness here then becomes a technology with which women can work on the gap. Can can kind of bring the gap together. I know it sounds very crude, <laughs> but it's literally meaning the gap between their objective and subjective experience.
1: And that's where you uh, continue on and, and, and mention other uh, other poten- other things that have potential for women to uh, em- become more empowered and take greater control over their desires, right? With BDSM and in play and how, and how that might, uh, put some authority back into the, um, uh, back into the hands of women who are obtaining such labels.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that, I, so just really quickly, just to go back to the biopathics for one second. I, I, yeah. So I think that basically, you know, in the, in the 21st century, we see this, you know, this diagnosis and all its different strands that I've outlined produced, you know, it kind of, it does produce women as a population, as a category, you know, and it's, and again, and and again, kind of inherent to that category, in ways that I think are not intentional, but are insidious, is that the category of women with low desire is cis, is heterosexual, or, you know, androphilic, attracted to men, is white, um, you know, is there's often like a kind of bourgeois middle classness, like it's like this is a, they're stressed out, they're too much multitasking. You know, they just need to like get in touch with their desire. Um, you know, they can use mindfulness to do that. Um, so I, I I think that because of all of that, because of the fact that like all those things are insidious. I also think that's another problem, right? Because it's a training. It's a training of women. It's a train, it's it's a it's the production of a population to then be kind of like trained and and worked upon. And importantly to work upon themselves um, in this way. You know, so often also the mindfulness is kind of like you do this for your not only for your family, not only for like the institution of heterosexuality, but you do it for yourself. You know, you do it for your own health because you need to have. Sex and you want to tap into your desire, and it's going to be better for you if you do. And you know, so I, I think that's part of it. Um,
1: and it also lot- suggests it also suggests that the person has a fully abled body. Is is that correct? It it doesn't take into consideration potential disability that prevents the person from having that same attraction and that same arousal.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that there there was some kind of push away from, for instance, um, mislabeling mislabeling asexual women, and I think that's a good move. But I do think that the whole design of this is ableist. I, I do. I think it's because I think it's 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 also in line with a certain kind of compulsory sexuality. It assumes that people. Want to have sex and want to have a certain sex in a certain way and, and should have sex, and that sex is good, and that, you know, yeah. And so it doesn't take into consideration the multitude of ways that people experience sexuality and desire, you know, um, in all kinds of different terms, yeah, across, across abilities and disabilities and embodied experiences. Absolutely. So that's one concern. Um, And then what, but one other thing I want to say before I get to BDSM, and I promise I will talk about BDSM (laughs) and the kind of autonomy and kind of taking the power back there um, is that I also think that it's really interesting because the other kind of player here, the other kind of strand that I haven't discussed is the anti-medicalization activism. And so part of the reason that mindfulness gets so much traction is because it's not a drug. And so there was a lot of pushback in the first decade of the 2000s against flabanserin or ADI, um, the drug that gets used, you know, to, and is now on the market today to, um, to improve women's desire. So there's kind of like this <laughs> bringing together um, of, of a lot of different clinicians, therapists, like kind of anyone, anyone who become who is like against the drug. kind of gets pulled in under the sign or the umbrella of of like a feminist activist. And there's this big movement toward kind of anti-medicalization. And like, there's a lot of pushback and, and, um, you know, like a lot of these drugs, you know, you don't, don't get FDA approval. You know, there's all these different, um, drugs that are, you know, tried to be put forward, you know, that use testosterone that, you know, all kinds of different, you know, eventually what ultimately gets arrived on is, um, is flavancerin is this, this drug that's, um, I mean, it's actually really kind of like an antidepressant. It's a neurotransmitter drug, which is kind of strange considering they often actually dampen desire. Um, but it's supposed to enhance women's desire. And, um, but again, a lot of these clinicians are very against this. They say, you know, this is, this is unnatural. This is, um, not good for women. This is just, um, this is disease mongering. This is, um, You know, for instance, the New View campaign um, out of New York City is very much like, you know, no drugs, no commodification of women's sexuality, you know, leave, don't try to put push these pills down women's throats. And I think it's because of that sentiment that the mindfulness, again, does get so much traction because it's supposed to be kind of safe. It's like safe and it's, you know, it's, it's, um, there's not, you know, no pharmaceutical company is going to be making a profit off of that, for instance. Um, but uh, something didn't sit well with me with that argument either when I first began this project 10 years ago. And I still feel this way because I think that there's kind of, um, a, a, a purism there, um, against the drug. I think that if we look at the way drugs have been used by different populations, including by queer people, you know, by all kinds of folks, like there's not one you know, kind of like monolithic way that drugs are used. I, I don't think that, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I don't stake my problem. You know, like I'm not going to die on the hill of like anti Um, And I actually think that the, the way that then mindfulness kind of enters the scene as this like wonderful, um, safe, you know, great kind of alternative to Addy and to the drugs is really problematic. Um, because I don't actually think that mindfulness is just this kind of safe, easy alternative. I think that mindfulness is a biopolitical technology. Um, I think it becomes a way to say to, to too many women, even if it's, again, even even if this is not the intention, to say, you just need to kind of train yourself to um, to tune in to your objective arousal. Because it's there, you just don't you you just may not um, have access to it. You know, you don't notice it and you're discordant. So you just need to tune in. And once you can kind of tap in or tune into your own free-flowing objective arousal, then you can harness your desire and then you can have better sex and you'll be happier and it'll be great. But mindfulness is actually like it's quite a bit of work, right? It's like you have to really like kind of learn how to be mindful and you have to do all this stuff. And Again, I'm not against mindfulness wholesale. I think that mindfulness has its place, and meditation can be useful for certain, you know, chronic pain issues for various things. Um, I'm actually a certified yoga instructor, and I've I've definitely used mindfulness and meditation. But I do think it's again from this kind of biopolitical population Foucauldian perspective. I think it's problematic to push this as a kind of training mechanism onto women specifically and to kind of, and and again, it really was for the first like 20 years, you know, up until like very, very recently, you know, in the 21st century, it was for women. It was like, women, you can do this. You can heal your discordance, you know, and I think that often, again, even if it's unintentional, the kind of underlying discourse is you can save your relationship. You can make your partner happy. You can make yourself happy. You should do this. You should want this. You know, and so, and that's the biopolitical piece.
1: And then I can't help but think about Arlie Hochschild and the labor capitalism that's also associated with it. It's almost a second shift in itself to work long hours and do all of the other responsibilities and come home only to expect uh, to to provide sexual labor to your partner.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so I do talk a bit about that, too. In my fourth chapter, I say a bit about about Hooks' Shield, but I also talk about um, some some Marxist feminists um, that I think can actually be situated alongside my kind of biopolitical Foucauldian analysis, um, where I say, yeah, I think that it does. It becomes a kind of work um, and it becomes not only a kind of like service work that you do potentially in your assumed heterosexual relationship. For the good of the relationship, but again, and this is where the biopolitical, the kind of like self work, the um, you know, that it becomes a way of of optimizing the self. It becomes it's good for your health. You should want this, um, and it becomes good for capital, right? Like you do it, and you become a better worker. You become a better woman. You become a happier person. You know, which will make you a better worker and a better woman and a better wife and a better mother and. You know, it'll 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 ease the problems that you've had because you're doing too much multitasking. It's it's very it just to me it just it rings of like a very bourgeois like work on the self, cultivate the self, optimize the self.
1: It's very um, political.
2: Yeah, it's very political. It's very work oriented. It's very much in the service of neoliberal capitalism. Um, I know we're probably going to be running out of time soon, so I I do I want to say just. Um, the other piece, though, so if, if, if we're going to say that there's all these different strands and that, you know, where I end up with kind of like close to the end of the book is this biopolitics of work, you know, the kind of like you're part of this population that is responsive and receptive, and you may not know you have this free flowing objective arousal, but you can tap into it, you can harness it, you can become mindful and um, work on it quite literally. Um I think the alternative is, I mean, so, you know, part of what I do in my book is I just, I talk to women about what they were, what they thought, you know, about all of this. And I I talk to them about, about also kind of what, what they thought, not only about like why their desire is low, but also about these ideas about women, these ideas about the gendering of sexuality here, like the idea that feminine sexuality is responsive and receptive, um, (laughs) You know, and I didn't say, you know, this is this diagnosis, but I did kind of I talked to a couple of women who'd actually been through the like treatment programs for women with low desire. And what they told me, I didn't talk to very many, so I, it was not it's not generalizable by any means. Um, but what these few examples of women actually told me is that they did learn about the circular sexual response cycle in this in this program that was a, a, intended to um, improve their low desire, you know, uh, in some cases also to kind of to help them with their vulvodynia with their genital pain during sex. Um, and they said, you know, they, they learned about this sexual response cycle, or this circular sexual response cycle, they learned about receptive, responsive femininity, um, they learned about mindfulness. And I didn't have to talk to them about what I'm telling you now, they said it to me, they said they, they felt like it was it was coercive and, and strange. That they were learning about receptive femininity when they were in a program to help them with their vulvodynia and genital pain, and in some cases, low desire. And these are people who were in these programs um, during the, the first decade of the 21st century. So, you know, things have likely changed since then. But at that time, they said they weren't asked, asked adequately about their sexual orientation, about their gender identity, and about whether or not they even wanted to be having sex with their partners. It was assumed that they identified as women, that they were heterosexual, and that they wanted to be with their partners. And in, in one case, for one of my participants, this person actually describes how she was in an abusive relationship. And actually, I, I, I'll use the pronoun they. And this person also is beginning to question their own gender identity. So at the time, this person did go by she, her pronouns, but my point is that this becomes a kind of, this kind of whole mix of all these different pieces with the concordance and discordance and the incentive motivation model and the circular sexual response cycle and the diagnosis and the mindfulness, it all becomes, again, this kind of network, what I call the feminized responsive desire framework for thinking about women, and it actually produces women, again, as a population to be worked upon. And... That doesn't work for all these people because some people that I talk to have low desire literally because they're being told they have to be women in this certain way. And for some of them, they were not comfortable with being women. They didn't want, like, let alone being receptive and responsive. You know, they were queer. They were not, you know, they didn't identify as heterosexual. So the gaps here are just huge. You know, there are so many problems with this discourse in the first decade of the 21st century that's like literally teaching people how to be women and how to be how to be sexual in a certain way as women when that's literally just not what they want at all. And so for some of my participants to get to the point about the BDSM and the um, autonomy and the agency, so some of them, you know, and many of them had not been through these training, these kinds of programs, these treatment programs, they said it wasn't until... I did away with these cis-heteronormative scripts. It wasn't until I started to think outside of those boundaries, you know, and it wasn't until I really started to think of myself as not receptive and responsive. But, um, you know, I use the term actually parasexuality and parasexual in my fifth chapter. And I say, um, (laughs) for some of these people, it was... there's a there's a kind of a place for sexuality but it's it's more about kind of playing with power it's more about like playing with the ebbs and flows and edges of desire it's um you know it's it's about all kinds of things but it's not about just harnessing you know receptivity or responsiveness it's not about just like kind of like working to close the gap between your subjective, your like lacking subjective desire and your free-flowing arousal. It's more about um, play it's more about play. Yeah, it's about play. It's about playing with power. It's about sometimes BDSM. It's about the the meditative possibilities of BDSM. Um, for some, it was about just literally not being with their partner that they weren't happy with you know, for some, it was about not approaching sex as work. Um, for some, it was about just literally expanding their horizons and just kind of not worrying so much about, (laughs) about like being good or doing the right thing sexually or servicing someone, or even just being kind of like a good sexual subject.
1: Exploration without all of the, without, without all of the, um, worry or uh fear of lack of performance.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that was really important. Yeah, and and without all the worry about about yeah, about 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 female complexity and <laughs> about being a woman. I mean, honestly, some of this is just about gender. It was about like not having to be a woman in a certain way. Um I think that's really really important and I think that we are so hemmed in by cis heteronormative narratives about sex. Um, in ways that we don't even notice <laughs> sometimes that are really damaging and that just recreate ideas about men and women. And again, men and women here are are not neutral categories. they're they're raced, they're classed, they're cisnormative. you know, they're like they're very particular kinds of men and women here. Um, and it seems like too many people are aspiring to be those types of people because that's what they're being told you know, that they should do from either science and medicine or the ways that science and medicine are being rehearsed in the media.
1: With a hyper focus on ejaculation and a hypo focus on, on orgasm, which goes back to performance. So.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and some women do just want to have orgasm. So I think that's totally fine. But, you know, like, and I think that like there should be more space for that too. But, um, but yeah, so I'll, the, I'll say just the, so basically the way that I end the book is to say, um, what if we <laughs> didn't worry so much about being, yeah, I don't know, receptive or responsive or being, or being kind of optimizing our sexuality or being mindful or being any of those things. I see all of those kinds of ways of thinking about sex as being fairly individualistic, um, as being kind of very cure, um, focused, which again, I think is ableist. um, and instead, what if we embrace the idea that we could just kind of fall apart? <laughs> and so actually, my last chapter is called The Freedom to Fall Apart. And it's about what I call feminine fracturing. And it's just about kind of like, what would it mean to just to, to do away with that focus on even being receptive and responsive in a certain kind of normative way? Um, what if we focus less on healing ourselves and being so, you know, attentive to these, I don't know, these like these norms, these normative ways of thinking. And instead, in a more communal way, um, it it kind of flips the script on the population argument. If my argument is about biopolitics and the population being produced as women with low desire, what if women with low desire kind of uh, just fell apart? Like what if and what if that was a way to kind of let that category fall apart, um, but also allow for a more communal togetherness and kind of solidarity of people who are often coercively feminized or kind of coercively um, made to feel receptive and responsive through these discourses.
1: Yeah, social movements approach, or at least that's how I see it, as a a ground up sort of an organically created group of people coming up instead of from a top down political expectation uh, expected to be upheld by members of society instead of a bottoms-up, instead a bottoms-up approach.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, very grassroots, very just people being together, figuring out what works for them, thinking of sex and sexuality differently, not thinking of it, you know, like, I think there's a lot here about asexuality. I think there's a lot to kind of consider um, from disability studies, from asexuality studies. I think of the work of somebody like um, Ella Perjvilo with asexual erotics. Um, I think of a ton of critical disability studies scholars, um, people like Lisa Johnson and Anna Malo, who are doing amazing work on just what if we think of kind of um, like cripping sexuality and cripping disorders, like thinking of these things in just really different ways. Like we don't have to heal from this disorder. We can um, just be together. And we can focus on the structures that have produced us as members of a population that is expected to heal or cure ourselves.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Spurgis, for joining me on New Books in Sociology. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but there, there, is one ta- there is time for one more question. And that is, what are you working on now?
2: Oh, um, <laughs> well, I'm actually uh, working on a book on self-care. Um, so I'm working on a co-authored book with Zoe Emilio Irwin. Um, who's a critical public health scholar? And we are going to be unpacking the, I mean, kind of very similar to what I've been talking about today, the legacy of self care, um, how it became kind of commodified, turned into an industry, um, and where we're at with self care today. So, is there, you know, again, it's, it's a kind of a similar theme. Is there space to have a more radical communal vision of self care as it was initially perceived? Um, you know, by people like Audrey Lord, by the Black Panthers. Um, you know, kind of what's the future of self care, particularly today? So it's um, it's 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 for a series on Or Books. Um, uh, it's called Decolonize That is the series. So it's it's thinking about self care um, through that decolonial lens. Um, and then a very future project that I haven't had time to fully flesh out is going to be on sexual robotics, um, and I'm interested in the future of sexual robotics. Um, and also kind of right to sex discourse um, and how that is going to inform and influence the burgeoning sexual robotics
1: industry. Plenty of literature out there on AI, so that'll be excellent to see, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, to incorporate into, your, into, into the future of sexual robotics.
2: Yeah, I hope so. I'm very excited. That's a pretty nascent project, but I hope to um, get started on that in the coming months. So yeah, it's exciting.
1: Well, again, this is Dr. Uh, Spurgis, who uh, is joining me on New Books and Sociology, a uh, uh, channel on New Books Network. And I uh, uh, look forward to talking with you uh, in the near future.
2: Thank you so much, Michael. It's been great talking with you.